Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. A few things to say before we get started with this Torah study. I did send out a source sheet and it's a much longer than usual source sheet because I wanted to send people an entire article, which takes up a good several pages at the end. Um, it was good Shabbat reading, I hope, for those who might have printed it ahead of time. Um, and this goes to interesting places. I, I want to give you a heads up about the style of this teaching just for the sake of time and also the sake of clarity. I think that this will wind up being more of a sure than a back and forth, more of a teaching than a back and forth, but I want to pause and leave times for uh, questions in between as well. I also want to clarify uh, for you that this is territory in the realm of the exploration of gender and sexuality that can be really new for some people. Um, I acknowledge that in the course of some people's lifetimes, they've seen an evolution in the way that different people regard their own gender identities, in the way that pronouns can be used, even in the evolution of language. I'll give you the example that even in my own lifetime, I've had to learn and relearn the use of the word and reclamation of the word queer, which is now used not as a, a slur of a word, but as a as a reclaimed positive word in the even the Jewish LGBT community, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, etc. community. And and queer is a an umbrella term for those people who find themselves outside the uh, the cis or the normative um, gender and sexual uh, frameworks. And so it, it's used not only with ease, but with great pride. So I acknowledge um, after that explanation, I, I want to share that I know that for some people, this territory feels new. For some people, the idea of partnership beyond the heterosexual norm is new. For some people, the idea of transsexuality is still something that they're grasping. And today we're going to delve into the territory of those people who identify beyond the gender binary, both in a biological way and also in a non-biological way. And what's so fascinating about this and what is so authentic about this and so authentically Jewish about this is evident in the source work that we get a chance to delve into today. And I want to offer thanks to my teacher, Rabbi Becky Silverstein, uh, who I learned from um, years ago when he was out at uh, the Pasadena Jewish Temple and Center, um, uh, who introduced me to some of these sources for the first time to Svara, which is a wonderful institute from which I got some of the sources on this sheet um, today. And as we go through this, I may introduce you to some I definitely will introduce you to some new terms, many of which I, I imagine will be brand new to you as you go through the source work. Uh, but I'm very excited to begin tiptoeing into this. These are not by any means the, the uh, concepts of gender that I'm going to introduce today are not by any means the only interesting concepts of gender found in biblical or even Mishnaic um 
literature alone. It, it really is a fascinating body of literature, but I wanted to give us an opportunity to study it this afternoon. Even that was a long introduction, but I wanted to give that framing and that framework. I'm excited to study it. And Tazria Mitsura, even though it's sort of the dreaded material for B'nai Mitzvah students, for me as a lover of mikvah, as a lover of uh, queer folks and rights and of um, and of the exploration of gender and sexuality and expression, I think that it's a fascinating place for us to delve into and to go. So we're going to go right into it. We're going to go back to the beginning of the 12th chapter of Leviticus of Ayikra to that second verse. Daber el b'nei Yisrael lehmor isha ki tazria v'yalda zahar v'tam'ah shivat yamim ki mei nidat dota titma. So Moshe is supposed to give an instruction to the Israelites, and he's supposed to say the following. When a woman at childbirth gives birth to a male child, she then goes into a state of tum'ah, a state of unreadiness um, to be exposed to those who are doing sacred work, and more importantly, uh, for her own private relations, uh, to be intimate sexually with her partner um, for seven days. And they make the direct, uh, this, this direct comparison textually um, to the, the author of, of our uh, text, the, the Torah narrator voice makes the, the direct comparison here to, um, to the um, Yemeni da that a woman experiences during her uh, menstrual uh, cycle. So it's it's the same kind of tuma. Okay, so this is the parallel that is um, created. And I'll just throw out here, this is going to be a very <laughs> explicit exploration of things. I am not shy about this territory. I hope you enjoyed this exploration with me. And I'm going to make it a holy and sacred and kind of radically exposed exploration. So just go there with me. Um, for those people who have either had the experience of childbirth or been friends with someone or partners with someone who has, this makes a lot of sense because this is the biological experience of somebody who goes through childbirth. Uh, they actually do go through a cycle that's similar to this. So this makes a lot of sense. Um, and also, there is an exploration in the text of a difference uh, between the experience of a woman who gives birth to a male child versus a female child and how long she experiences going through this period of not um, being ritually ready to return to intimate relations, right? Once you enter this um, uh, state where you've... Um, you have been tumid. Um, you've you've been uh, your body has has turned to the state. Uh, you there there's a difference between what happens when you give birth to a male child and to a female child. This is where we enter interesting territory rabbinically, and we're going to get in a few sources down the road to an idea as to whether or not the rabbis are going through an exercise or whether they are talking about a truly lived experience from their perspective. I want you to leave that idea, that concept open, is the following that we're about to go into, just a rabbinic exercise, as there are so many exercises, by the way, as those who study Talmud regularly, I I happen to have Marshall in the middle of my uh, screen here, there are those who study Talmud regularly who know that there are questions asked by the rabbis that are just theoretical questions that you would know that this case never was and never will be, but they want to go down that road for the exercise. And there are also those questions that are asked that are truly asked 
for the sake of what happens if, because those cases are among the rabbis and they want to know what will happen if, because they want to know how do you take the text that you have in the Torah and live it out in the real world? What do you do if somebody is neither male nor female? What happens when someone is born and immediately, and remember, this is a baby, so this is not about the expression of gender identity, but now we're talking about sex organs and they're not identifiable as a female or a male by their sex organs. What do we do in terms of the woman's days of, of um, tum'ah, of, of being, um, of being a tum'ah, right, um, tum'ah? And what do we do in terms of circumcision? So we're going to go down this road for a moment in Bava Batra. I'm going to read the translation, and there's some that's not bolded here, just for the sake of time. The, the Aramaic is actually fascinating here. It's much longer in translation because um, thanks to the folks who did the Steinsaltz translation, they're filling in the context from the previous part of Bava Batra on 127. Rav says the following. A tomb-tomb, we'll get to that that uh, vocabulary word in just a few more minutes, a tomb-tomb who was found to be male is also not circumcised on the eighth day if his eighth day occurs on Shabbat. Okay, so you don't do a brit milah, a bris on Shabbat for a child who is in the category of tomb-tomb who is identified to be um, male, meaning they have with what to do a brit milah, uh, even though the mitzvah of brit milah usually overrides Shabbat, meaning you can usually do a bris on Shabbat. As the verse states, and this is the verse we had, if a woman bears seed and gives birth to a male, then she should be unclean seven days, as in the days of the impurity of her sickness shall she be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. That's the very next verse, which is interpreted to mean that he's not circumcised on the eighth day in the event that it occurs on Shabbat, unless he's recognized as a male from the moment of his birth. In other words, you cannot rely, you cannot override Shabbat. Brit Milah will not override Shabbat in the case that a child is born with um, ambiguous with an, with an ambiguous sexual identity. Okay? Pause on that for a minute. Go to the next piece of Bava Batra. Different oddly named Rav. I love this. Sharavia. Rav Sharavia says, his mother's also ren uh, not rendered uh, to me. She's not made ritually impure due to his birth. As the verse states, if a woman bears seed and gives birth to a male, then she shall be unclean seven days, which is interpreted to mean that she's not rendered impure unless he's recognized as a male from the moment of his birth. So there's a live question here about birth and the moment of birth and the identification of sexuality with sex organs. It's clear that for the vast majority of human history, we have connected sexuality and gender identity, they have been one and the same. But even more importantly, even those people in uh, the queer community who, and uh, those who would 
be interested in delving into halakha would say this makes sense as an exploration because what we're talking about here is brit milah and you can only discuss brit milah with somebody who has the sex organ to which that applies right so this is actually really fair and i think comfortable territory to be exploring in that regard for the most part okay hold on to all of um of these thoughts we're going to go on to one more part of bava batra now we're going to introduce one more category of possibility. Um, a tum-tum or an androginos, okay, or an androginus, depending on who's transliterating the, uh, I prefer androginus, it depends on who who's transliterating the uh, Aramaic, uh, which is probably Latin, really, observes the strictures of a woman who gave birth to a male and to a female. Okay, so you get you get both of the uh, lengths of time and all you get both the the laws that apply to the giving birth to a male child and to a female child both of those apply if you give birth to an ambiguously sexually identified um, child then both apply according to this page of Baba Bacha since it is uncertain whether the fetus is male or female the woman must observe the halachot of ritual impurity according to both possibilities this appears to be a conclusive refutation, okay, tiuvte, a conclusion refutation of the statement of Rav Sherevya that a woman who gives birth to a tomb tomb is not rendered impure at all. So this is fighting back against that statement. The Gemara affirms it's a conclusive refutation. So both apply. So you have to apply both the, the laws of male and female. So that gets pushed back upon. And instead, you have to apply all the laws that apply to both male and to female. Centuries and centuries later in Halakha, what gets codified for a portion of this, I wanted to bring a little piece of Shulchan Aruch on this, Ayoledet Tumtum o Androginos, the one who gives birth to either Tumtum or an Androginos. We give her the days of the ritual impurity of a female child. So we they assign the default of a female child. Okay, so what's going on here is a discomfort with what do we do when we don't know what the uh, what the identity of a child is in terms of the categories of how it applies to the mother and how it applies to the child's body as well. Right, because so far we've explored the halachot as they apply to both of these two uh, different individuals in this situation. We have both the brit milah at play, and we also have the days that the mother needs to observe. So it's not just impacting on the child, it's also impacting on the parents. And that's also a really important thing to keep in mind about the evolution of the sexual and gender identity of uh, a child as they grow up, particularly when they are born, with some questions about that from day number one. We're going to go to Mishnah Bikurim now. I'm going to move right along just because there's so much material here. And we're going to learn a little bit about these categories as they're described and the differentiation between them. This is some tough stuff, but it's really important to get into. And androgynous. So that is somebody that's typically translated as a hermaphrodite. That is that somebody who has both recognizable sets of male and female sex organs 
And in the case of our Talmud, we were talking about from birth, there are in them manners equivalent to men, and there are in her manners equivalent to women. They are in her manners equivalent to men and women, and there are in Zir manners equivalent to neither men nor women. I want to pause for a second and and clarify for you that the translation here is a translation I took from Sfara, and some of these pronouns come from the world of um, of um, queer authorship, where there is an exploration of how to do gender non-binary pronouns. Some people are using them, they, and their, and others are using these here and zir. There are others as well, but these are some that are being explored. These are the ones that were used in translation from Spar, and I wanted to give you some exposition and, uh, uh, sorry, exposure to them. That's what I meant to say. Exposure to them to get an, an opportunity to see them in use. Okay. And uh, Robbie Mayer says, Androginus, he is a creation in her own image, and the sages could not determine if Androginus is male or female. But Tum Tum is not so, for he is sometimes male and sometimes female. So let's pick apart that Rabbi Mayer explanation for a second, okay? Androgynous is indeterminate, meaning from birth, whether they're male or female, meaning because they have both of both the sex organs, possibly potentially from birth, it's not clear whether or not they should be assigned one gender or the other, but a tomb tomb is not so because there are some things about them that seem male and some things about them that seem female. So what I want you to understand about this idea is that from the very start, not only is there an understanding in rabbinic literature of an ambiguity about there being a gender binary, but that there are different shades of that gender binary. Okay. So there are, there's that concept that there might be those who, uh, to whom it's not clear what gender ought to be assigned to them. And there are also those who exhibit some sort of a mixture and seem to stand in this in-between non-binary category. If those don't seem like different things to you, or if you're confused by this, Don't worry, because this is confusing material, and the whole concept here is the concept of confusion, right? It's the concept of breaking through a binary that is the default through human existence up until now. And yet, what we're talking about is the Mishnah, right? This is codified as an oral um, code in 200. So already this discussion was in existence, you know, thousands of years ago. So we've been having this conversation a long time, and it's tough stuff. Let's go a little bit further. I want to take a look at two um, two pieces that pick this apart a little bit further in theory, and the one that takes it somewhere a little bit emotionally. Let's take a look at this idea, uh, this piece on gender identity and halachic discourse. As a figure of thought, the halachic androgynous may appear to be the result of adding or subtracting the laws applying to men and women based on his or her dual sex. However, 
the rabbinic texts do indicate the relative weight of both sexes. In the end, the combination of both primary sexual organs in one body does not allow for either hybridity or choice. Indeed, in the project of integrating the doubly sexed body into the binary halachic system, the presence of the male organ has greater signifying force than the female organ. Thus, the androgynous must dress like a man, but most significantly, he may take a wife, but cannot be taken as a wife, just as he is subject to the laws of leveret marriage as a man, but not as a woman. A minority opinion in the Mishnah to the effect that sexual relations between a man and an androgynous should be punished by stoning is glossed in the Tosefta by restricting it to a sexual act in the way of masculinity. While this discussion indicates that the presence of a male organ is not necessarily entirely determinative of the maleness of the androgynous, since vaginal intercourse with him can be considered permissible, it also reveals the anxiety driving the halakhic consideration of marriage or sexual relations with the androgynous about being, as being about potential male penetration. In sum, even though the rabbinic semiotics of the body open the gate towards a remarkable self-consciousness about the potential ambiguity of its signs, the same system manages to maintain its fundamental gender binarism in Jewish law. So how does it man maintain its binarism, right? How does it keep that, that binarism? So Noach Ditsmura, I think that's how you pronounce his name, in this next piece talks about how that binary is actually kept on going or maybe even pushes back against this idea of how it keeps that binary going by saying that it's actually not that the binary keeps going. He believes, or they believe, not sure the gender of, not, not assuming the gender of this person who wrote this next piece is beautifully put together, that the default is actually this ambiguity, but that halakha demands that we make decisions on micro pieces of life. So halakha makes us decide piece by piece in life what we must do, but that in living out life in between those decisions that demand the binary, we, that the individual may revert back to that sort of queer space of the non-binary. Okay. So in, it, it's that third space. Then this first piece, uh, they say it's like Schrodinger's cat, which is both dead and alive at the same time until an observation is made. So the Mishnaic hermaphrodite is single-sexed and double-sexed and neither-sexed all at the same time, at least until the law requires a movement towards one state or another, right? And then the second piece, rather, the situation-specific truths exist for a brief time in a longer-term container of indeterminacy. And in the third piece of it, in order to collectively recognize an ambiguous or indeterminate third space alongside a recognized binary, requires training about two simultaneous realities, a situational truth plus the recognition of a third space as an overarching category. This idea that situationally people have to decide. And in this last piece that we're going to look at together, I think you'll understand this in the decision and the reality. At the end of the day, if you are in a place where there is only a men's restroom and a women's restroom, one restroom must be used, right? There are situational places in the everyday life of an individual where decisions must be made. But the rest of the time, a person may live out their life in that queer third space if they fall into these categories, at least of the tumtum and the androgynous, according to these two pieces. I want to read you 
the first paragraph of this piece by Rabbi Elliot Rose Kukla. And then I want to discuss the last piece and then we'll close on this. The first time I met the Tum Tum, I was 20 years old and studying in Orthodox Yeshiva. As soon as I read this perplexing text, I called over my teacher and excitedly asked her, who is this Tum Tum? Oh, she answered, the Tum Tum is a mythical beast that is neither male or female, kind of like a unicorn that our sages invented in order to explore the limits of the law. Remember what I said earlier? Even though I knew next to nothing about Jewish texts and traditions, I had a feeling that my learned teacher might be wrong. I instantly identified with the tomb tomb. I had spent a lifetime feeling homeless and adrift between the modern categories of male and female. When I met the tomb tomb, I finally came home. I still recognize the tomb tomb whenever we meet in the text, and I am still surrounded by voices that deny that the tomb tomb and I really exist. From that to an article that I shared with you uh, that just came out this past week from WBUR in Boston. Uh, that's their public radio station there. It's shared by some friends of mine this week. And I want to read you a, a very small selection from the beginning of this as well. And you'll know immediately that this is a very Jewish family. It's 7.30 a.m. on a school day. Two parents are racing to get their three young children dressed, fed, packed for the day into coats and out the door when six-year-old Hallel runs downstairs crying. Ari, Hallel's father, is the first to intercept the distraught child and ask, what's wrong? The answer launches a journey these parents never envisioned, described by words they've not heard and questions they never thought they'd ask. We're only using first names for the family members in this story due to Hallel's age. The journey starts with a let's pretend game. As Hallel explains it, little sister Yara wanted to play parents. Yara decides that she'll be the mommy and Hallel will be the daddy. Hallel protests. Yara insists Hallel is a boy and therefore must play daddy. But that doesn't feel right, Hallel says to Ari between tears, because I'm a boy girl. Shira, Hallel's mother, says she copes well in a crisis. In that moment, she packaged the news away for later. I was like, well, we love you whoever you are. Give me a hug, Shira remembers telling Hallel. I wanted to start with ancient texts and end with this article that came out this week so that I can be in conversation and begin a conversation with all and any of you, anybody who's here on Zoom, anybody who's here on YouTube, anybody who might listen to this teaching later on the podcast, to say that this conversation, even though it feels fresh, and even though as the article later goes on to say, this one I just read, that people are always asking, why are why is this newfangled thing coming out, this non-binary gender concept coming out, to know that there is an authentic conversation that goes back millennia in our texts about this very thing. And I am always happy to be in conversation about it. And especially so because I think that there is a deeply fascinating and beautiful concept of this idea that the default might be to go back to this queer third space for somebody who might be in the in-between and there's so much beauty and what we could possibly learn for that from that, not just for this specific issue, but possibly to be pulled out on the meta uh, from that, this idea that halakha demands us to make situationally decisions piece by piece 
but that when we're in between that zone, uh, that we can revert to this idea that we may um, just live between the binary. So I'll leave us there. And I'm sorry that I didn't have more time for individual questions, but I, I want to encourage um, anybody who might have questions. I, I guess we can leave maybe two or three minutes if anybody has anything that they want to add or say or ask um, before we turn back to Mari. Anybody want to add anything or ask anything before we close? I'm, I'm scary. I just have a question. How common is this? I, I'm, I'm, thank you so much for doing this. I've learned a lot. But how, I mean, is this a one in a million? I just, I just don't know how frequent I've I'm not questioning some people have preferences for one sex over another, but this is a biological thing. And I just don't have any idea how common this is. Great. I'm so glad that you asked that, Gary. So I don't have statistics in front of me about biologically, medically, how many people are born with sex organs that are either indeterminable or are both uh, sex organs. But I want to be clear that what I'm talking about here is that there are also many people who are born with pretty clearly um, binary sex organs, but who later in life go on to identify um as gender non-binary or gender non-conforming or gender queer. Those are the kind of the three major categories. And so uh, those folks often, if they live in the Jewish world, turn back to these texts to try to understand where they might fit when it comes to Jewish life and living out uh living out a um, life according to the tradition. So um, it it's not really possible to think statistically about um, about those individuals because we just don't know. Um, we just don't know. It looks like there's somebody with a hand raised. You're welcome to unmute. Um, I don't know if this is okay because this is actually my first time here as a guest and I didn't see your text, um, your source sheet, uh, but I wanted to say just coincidentally, uh, while my life, long life so far, I've always been affiliated conservative, I'm interested in halakha across movements. So I look a lot at reform responsa, and there's a really beautiful reform responsa that I just sent to someone this week, coincidentally, about a woman identifying as female, presenting as female, but hadn't had surgery yet converting to Judaism and asked the reform movement officially whether since this human being still had a biological foreskin, should though in the community she was known as a she, did she need circumcision to convert? Yeah. So, and the answer actually by the reform was yes, because even though this is a woman circumcision applies to those who have the body part. And at that point she had the body part, but if she had finished the surgery, she wouldn't have had the body part anymore. It was just really beautifully done. So I hope it's okay to toss that in reform responsa. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said something. First of all, welcome. I'm glad you came. Second of all, thank you for sharing such an interesting piece of, uh, of Torah um, I, I find that fascinating. I've explored it in the conservative movement as well. And since we are in the zone of sharing things that are really radical and sometimes hard to wrap our brains around, it is in fact um, it's in fact quite a liberal and radical queer conception to say something like 
some women have penises. And that sentence uh, and that conception in the queer world, in the liberal world, in the world in which you might find yourself saying that to somebody who's preparing for a conversion, who is living as a transgender um, woman pre, either preoperatively or non-operatively, uh, is is um, it, it's 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 a it is really a wild world to be living in if you're not used to having that conversation. And it's why I wanted to open the door to having this candid and interesting conversation on the platform of Torah, because I wanted everybody here to understand and know that this is a Torah based and authentic and and um, and rich conversation to be had. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.